0: you're visiting with us, our usual preacher is out of town. So third string is up today. How many uh, people in the religious world around us understand that there is a church described in the Bible? And if they do, do they conclude that the church with which they are affiliated is that church? Because obviously there are many different churches in the world today. And the United States, of course, is loaded with them. Uh, they're typically called denominations, uh, Protestant denominations. The Catholic Church kind of stands on its own. It's not a denomination. but. When you go to the Bible, is that the portrait that you find? Is God God good with that state of affairs? Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, we we have an answer to this question. When did God decide to make a way for humans to be forgiven of sin by the blood of Jesus? Is that not the core of Christianity? What Jesus has done for us? Well, when you look at this passage, that is a, a central feature of Christianity, but that's not all. Notice the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul preaching that to the Gentiles as it had been preached to the Jews. And this is the mystery. The word mystery in the New Testament doesn't mean mysterious. It means unrevealed, hidden. Which from the beginning of the ages had been hidden in God who created all things through Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God you know, that's talking about his saving human beings, making it possible for people to be saved, might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to, look at this phrase here, the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice that, God made the plan, he formulated the plan by which Jesus would come and make it possible for people to be forgiven of sin. And he formulated that plan in eternity. That means before he even created the universe. Before he even created the first human beings. Before there was any sin to be forgiven. God in his foreknowledge knew that when he created humans, they would sin. So he, he formulated a plan to take care of it. Isn't that incredible? But do you not see from this passage that at that same time, God formulated his plan to build the church? See, the way Christendom is set up today is you become a Christian, you accept Christ, you ex- get the blood of Jesus, and then, you know, after the fact, uh, join the church of your choice or affiliate yourself with a church or blah, blah, blah. That's not the way the Bible presents this situation. They're together. Formulated in the mind of God from eternity. No wonder then when Jesus came to the planet, He said, you know, one of the reasons why I'm here is to build my church. You know, people think, well, to atone for sin on the cross. True. But He also said, I'm going to build my church. And it doesn't seem to me that that's emphasized in the religious world as it ought to, and look at the Bible passages in the Old Testament that lay this out. You know, we could go to many, many passages in the Bible to see, Old Testament to see predictions of Jesus coming, right? Messianic prophecies. In fact, Isaiah is known as the Messianic prophecy because there's so many prophecies in his book that anticipate the, the coming of Jesus for us. But look at these other passages that he and other Old Testament prophets indicate. Look at the, the, the terminology here. He predicted that the day would come. He describes it as the last days. That the mountain of the Lord's house would be established on the top of the mountains, exalted above the hills, and all nations would flow into it. Now, remember Isaiah's writing about 800 years before Jesus came to the planet. Okay, think of that. 800 years before Jesus came to die on the cross. Many people will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord of the house of God. He'll teach us his ways. We'll walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's where this is going to uh, be launched. And he will judge between the nations, rebuke many people. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Notice that. Implements of uh, war will be terminated. People look around and say, well, (laughs) that hasn't happened yet. So this prophecy must not have come true. Well, we shall see. That's Isaiah chapter 2. Let's move to Daniel. We're just going to hurriedly go through several of these passages in the time allotted to us. Remember the, the setting of Daniel 2 where Daniel and his three friends have been deported from Israel into Babylonian captivity, and uh, they are able to rub elbows with royalty in you know, the higher echelon of the Babylonian empire at the time, come into direct contact with the king himself. And you remember that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that caused him loss of sleep. And uh, it so bothered him that he summoned out of his empire all those individuals that claimed to be able to deal in such matters. Uh, and Babel, Babel, the Babylonian empire had its people like that, just like we have them in our country, uh, palm readers and fortune tellers and astrologers and so forth. Well, the Bible consistently presents the idea that's all a bunch of fake stuff. There's nothing to it whatsoever. Nothing about the alignment of the stars, or any other thing by which people can determine anything about life. Uh, you must go to God's word. And when he summons all these fellows out, and, they, and he says, look, I, I can't even remember the dream. That, that's gone from me too. So I need you to refresh my memory about the dream and then interpret it. They said, no, nah, you, uh, you tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. You, you can see why. You know, somebody tell you a dream, you can make up stuff. But to actually be able to recall for the king the dream that he had? They couldn't do that. They're fakes. He presses them a time or two, and, uh, and they get kind of smart, like belligerent, and say, well, you know, like we don't know any king that would require his, uh, his uh, astrologer-type people, Chaldeans they're called in this text, to, uh, to actually recall the dream. Well, that was a dumb thing to say. That made him mad. And he said, if nobody can do this, I'm going to execute all of you. Remember the captain of the guard, Arioch, uh, was in haste to uh, carry out his king's wishes and that brought it to the ears of Daniel and Daniel was told, here's what's going on. So uh, Daniel prayed, called his three friends together. They prayed that God would reveal the details of the matter and he did. And so he, you remember, contacted Arioch and said, please go back, tell the king that uh, that I can interpret this dream. So he goes before this pagan monarch, and the pagan monarch you know, says, I understand you can help me here. And he basically says, no, um, but there's a God. You know, The Babylonians believed in many gods. But Daniel says, no, <laughs> there's the one true God of heaven, and he's revealed the details of it. And remember, he then relates the dream. You saw this massive uh, statue that... Um, was divided basically into four parts and you saw a um, you know it had a, a head of gold a chest and arms of silver belly and and thighs of uh, bra- bronze and then legs of iron the feet had clay mixed in with the iron and you saw this rock this stone cut out of a mountain with no agency no hands or anything did it it just carved itself out flew through the air and hit this uh, massive statue at the base of it, causing the whole thing to topple and break into pieces and blow to the four winds. Well, (laughs) that old monarch said, if I might update the terminology, wow, that's incredible, that's exactly what I dreamed. And Daniel said, now let me interpret it for you. You, O king, are the head of gold. The sections that follow represent four successive world kingdoms that will come into being. And he gives additional details there along the way. But notice in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, after identifying the fourth kingdom, he says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So during the days of the Roman kings, God would set up a kingdom, and this kingdom would be a permanent kingdom. It would have no end. It would never be uh, destroyed or eliminated. Now, I am confident that neither Daniel nor Nebuchadnezzar nor anybody there understood the full import of this prophecy. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar was sufficiently impressed that he immediately elevated Daniel and uh, praised the one true God as being a genuine God compared to uh, all of the others on the planet. Let's move quickly to Joel. Here's another prophet. Nobody knows for sure the time frame. You know, Daniel lived about 500 B.C. Joel, it's not certain. Some think as early as 700 and then uh, closer in time to Christ. But in any case, centuries before Jesus. And you remember how he uses this terminology in the Old Testament version because this will be quoted, you remember later, it shall come to pass afterward. That's kind of a cryptic term, isn't it? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is God speaking. The spirit, his spirit, would be poured forth. And notice the terminology all flesh, which is a technical designation used throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament to refer to all categories, all classifications, of human flesh, not animal. And biblically, there are only two. Jew and everybody else. Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And notice after giving this uh, really apocalyptic language, uh, wonders in the heavens, blood and fire, smoke, the sun turned to darkness. This is apocalyptic language reminiscent of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation. We don't have time to go into all of that. But he says it'll come to pass, verse 32, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fascinating. And again, identifies Mount Zion in Jerusalem. I probably should have put that over here like we did with the Isaiah prophecy as well. Alright, those are Old Testament passages. We could go to others. Micah 2 has very similar terminology as Isaiah. Zechariah has a comment or two about the matter. But let's move on into the New Testament. You know, there's Four to five hundred year gap between the old and the new, where God is silent. And then suddenly in Matthew, we have these redemptive events begin to culminate in climax in grand fashion. Absolutely astounding. This ought to be something, among other uh, aspects of Christianity, that delights us every day, that thrills us, that God would accomplish all of this. You remember uh, John the Baptizer in fulfillment of Isaiah 40. In Malachi uh, 3, when uh, both of those prophets predicted that uh, Elijah would return, and Jesus said uh, that was uh, John the baptizer, not a reincarnation, but simply an Elijah-like individual. His sermon was very simple, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, according to uh, John the baptizer, by the way, 417 is Jesus preaching the same sermon. So both of them, in roughly A.D. uh, 29, 28, something like that, said the kingdom is near. It's nearly here. And you move further into this book where Jesus, in talking with his disciples, says that uh, upon this rock, uh, Peter has just articulated that rock. You remember what it was. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, you're right, Peter, you are Peter a stone, but upon this ledge rock truth, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, Hades, not hell, our older translations, uh, or at least the 1611 has hell there. But that's the Greek word Gehenna, used consistently in the, Old, in the New Testament to refer to the fire of hell. That's not the term that's used here. It's the word Hades, the unseen realm of the dead. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, uh, New American Standard translates the original better, will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. This has all been pre-decided, and the apostles were simply carrying out God's will on these matters. Moving to the next book of the New Testament, Mark, where you remember Jesus standing in the presence of a number of his disciples on this occasion made the statement that uh, some of you are still sta- or some of you standing here will not be dead. He used a Hebrew idiom taste of death until you see the kingdom of God come with, with power. Of course, if the kingdom of God has not yet come, if the kingdom is yet future to our day, as the premillennial element claims, then there are still some of these apostles around uh, that are now, what, 2,000 years old. You, therefore, some of these apostles will still be alive when the kingdom comes. And notice, uh, here's the first indication of uh, the manner in which it will come. He describes it as being with power. Isn't that fascinating? Again, no doubt the apostles didn't really know what he was talking about other than uh, there were little indicators in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that they were hoping that the Messiah would function as a king like David, being the son of David, and would throw out the Roman invader. And so it would be a literal military conflict. They no doubt interpreted the term power in that way. Moving to Luke. Here is Luke's wording of the Great Commission. Stay in the city of Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high at which point repentance and remission of sins will be preached in Christ's name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, and there again, as he stated in Mark, he identifies the event as being associated with power. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll skip John And move to Acts. Remember, Acts picks right up where Luke concludes. Same author, same audience. And they dovetail. They're connected together. Some of the end of Luke 24 is restated in Acts 1. And then Jesus, meeting with his uh, apostles, of which there's only 11 at this point, he tells them to stay in Jerusalem. Look at that. Because you will receive power. And now we know what power he was talking about. He wasn't talking about military might. He was talking about power imparted by the Holy Spirit. Now, he tells us that explicitly. Notice, I've not really done any interpretation for you at this point. I've just given you the passages. We're listing the points that each one of these passages make for us. Now, think about this. Going back at least to 800 B.C., 750 B.C., And looking at all of these people, all of these writers, these are all different writers over a period of many centuries. Uh, These people didn't know each other. Isaiah never met Daniel in person. Lived far apart from each other. And none of these Old Testament people ever met uh, Paul or or Mark or Matthew. Uh, This is just Bible written by the same mind. And yet, look how all of these uh, indicators and many others that we haven't had time to look at come to climactic fulfillment. Isaiah said it would happen in the last days. If you'll open your Bible to Acts chapter two and glance at these verses as we go through them very quickly, you'll see. Here's the fulfillment of this, because in this passage, you remember Luke or Peter quotes Joel two and identifies this event as occurring in the last days. In verse 47 in the King James, we have the term church used, although that's not in the original text. It's a more uh, technical expression he added to their number, which was an expression used in the first century to refer to the church. But if you flip over to 1 Timothy 3.15, we are told that in fact the Lord's house is the church. We're all nations. Uh, gathered on this occasion, yes, no Gentiles, but there were Jews from every nation under heaven. Why did Luke go out of his way to say that? Every nation under heaven. And they were, in fact, situated in the city of Jerusalem. Because you remember in the previous chapter, Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait there till you be endued with power from on high. I'm telling you what Isaiah said in Isaiah 2 was fulfilled on, on this event, on this occasion. Moving to Daniel, were we in the period of the Roman kings? Absolutely. Uh, Jesus was uh, born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. By this time, Tiberius is uh, the Caesar over the Roman Empire. Is this a kingdom? The term kingdom is not used anywhere in Acts 2. But kingdom terminology is. Reigning, Jesus reigning over his uh, kingdom is uh, depicted in this uh, passage. Nothing specifically said in Acts 2 about it not being destroyed, but you read further in the New Testament and we are informed that Christ's church, the kingdom, will in fact never be shaken or destroyed. Moving to Joel, did this on this occasion? Was the Holy Spirit poured out? That's a very specific reference and prediction, is it not? And yet that's exactly what happened. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's later described as. We mentioned all flesh, although all Gentile. Uh, We don't have the Gentile portion of all flesh present on this occasion, on this day. Within ten years or so, uh, Gentiles were added. And notice that Luke explains in chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Why not here in Jerusalem? Because it consisted only of Jews. What about that statement that Joel made in verse 32 of his prophecy? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter quotes that very verse on that occasion on that day. And it's fulfilled in verse 38. That's how people called on the name of Jesus. You remember Jesus and John the baptizer uh, said that the kingdom is near. And sure enough, uh, kingdom terminology used in verse 33 It had come on that occasion. Moving to Matthew, where Jesus said he would build his church, he did. Is the term Hades used in Acts 2? It absolutely is, in the quotation of Psalm 16, where David, not referring to himself, but simply stating Jesus' thinking, you will not allow my spirit to remain in Hades, nor my body to remain in the grave. In other words, that's a reference to the resurrection, the resurrection. Jesus' spirit, when it left the body and they put the body in the tomb, went into the Hadean realm, not to hell or to heaven. He went to the Hadean realm. Were the keys of the kingdom dispensed on that day? Well, what do keys do? They allow you to gain entrance into whatever it is you're unlocking with those keys. Well, the terms of entrance into the kingdom of Christ were articulated on that occasion by Peter and the other apostles. Were some of the apostles still alive? As a matter of fact, all but Judas. Once again, kingdom terminology, and again, the concept of power when the Holy Spirit came upon them according to verse 4. Moving to Luke's uh, wording uh, was repentance and remission of sins preached in Christ's name. Absolutely. Verse 38, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission. There's repentance, remission of sins in Christ's name, all articulated on that occasion. Again, all nations were there. They were in the city of Jerusalem. And then once again, the terminology of power, which is also the case in Acts 1 where Jesus said that's what would be the source of the miraculous power that the apostles received. Now look at this. It's a denominational world. Understand this? Have they put this together? How could they? And conscientiously then formulate uh, and establish a host of churches that now dominate the spiritual landscape. Listen, the church of the Bible, which is not to be equated with denominationalism, was brought into visible existence on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ in the year A.D. 30, That church is Christ's church. It predates all churches and all denominations. Why then would you want to have such a thing? I I cannot imagine there would be one person on the planet that would say, yes, in Acts 2, Christ's church was established, and that was the Presbyterian church. That was the Methodist church. That was the Baptist church. In fact, I can almost guarantee you no such person would make that claim. Absolutely. Admit that those came about later. So then the question becomes, well, is is that okay with God for those to come about later? And see, you have to clear that thicket out of your mind in order to go back and see the pristine, pure simplicity of God's view of the church. And there it is. There it is. Why would anybody want to be a part of of a group of people that claim to be a church and give themselves a a designation that is unscriptural and not to be found in Scripture. I can be a Christian without joining a church. I can be saved without the church, not according to the Bible. To suggest that one can accept Christ without also accepting the one church for which Christ died is to advocate a decapitated gospel because the head... Uh, is the head of the body. And we mentioned uh, Ephesians 3 that this was pre-planned by God. At the very time that he was pre-planning to send Jesus into the world, he also pre-planned to bring the church of Christ into existence. So notice how they go together. You can't do one without the other. You can't become a Christian and then think in terms of the church. When you become a Christian, you are instantaneously and simultaneously being placed by God, by Christ, into his church. That is where the blood enables a person to be saved. How do you know that? Because Paul told the Ephesian elders that the blood of Christ was shed so that it could be applied to the church. Now think through that. So the the moment the blood of Christ is applied to your spirit is the same moment that you become a part of the church. Because Christ shed his blood to purchase the church. You see those can't be separated? They occur together. So to accept the cross of Christ means to accept the church of Christ. You can't have one without the other. You can't separate the head from the body. The blood of Christ is what makes it possible for a person to be part of the body of Christ. And that's why Paul stated that the church is Christ's body. All right. Now look at this carefully. If Paul told the Ephesians that the church is Christ's body, and yet three chapters later he said there's only one of them, then what are you forced to conclude logically from Scripture? You're forced to conclude that there's only one church. To suggest that multiple churches exist with God's approval is to suggest that Jesus, the head, has multiple bodies. Get a picture of that in your mind. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. That's man-made concoctions. All right, one final point. We'll close. You remember uh, when Paul went to Athens and saw all these different images to representing all these different deities, and you remember how he said, "I see you people are very religious." What if Paul had just come right out and said, "You realize folks, there 's actually only one God. Would that have been offensive to the Athenians and to those uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that believed in Apollos and Zeus and Aphrodite and a host of gods and goddesses. Would that have been offensive to stand there and say, no, I'm sorry, there's only one. Well, you know it would have been. But do you know that in Ephesians, which was also a pagan city like Athens, in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul put it, ensconced it in writing for all time. There's only one God and there's only one church. I suppose to stand out there on the street corner and tell the world there's only one church would be just as offensive and infuriating as it would have been for Paul in Athens or Ephesus to say there's only one God. But that is in fact the case. Christ is the head of the church, and he saves, by the way, only the body. He's the Savior of his body, the church, and that's all that will be saved. Nobody will be saved outside of the body of Christ. These are powerful concepts. Jesus saves his body, which is the church. How do we become a part of the body of Christ? We are baptized into one body. Well, are you baptized twice? Wants to become a Christian? Wants to uh, enter the church? No. So what does the denominational world do? You accept Jesus as your Savior and you're saved, then you can be baptized to enter a church. Not taught in the Bible. It's just not there. The same act that brings you in contact with the blood of Christ is the same act that brings you into the church of Christ. Do you not see that that's what these passages state clearly? So a person cannot be saved without being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. And a person cannot be a part of the blood-bought body of Christ, the church of Christ, without being baptized for the remission of sins. Water immersion is the only way to get into the Christ body, the church, and it's the only way to get into the saved. No wonder then Jesus said, unless you're born of water, and he's clearly referring to H2O, You cannot enter the kingdom. All right. If you're in our assembly this morning, ask yourself these questions. Am I a member of the Church of Christ's Choice? Here's the simple plan of salvation. Isn't it simple? How could so many people miss it? How can so much of the religious world around us miss this? Who teach you're saved at the point of faith and baptism follows forgiveness? Whereas the New Testament teaches that faith, repentance, and confession precede access to the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, which occurs at the point of water immersion. As Christians, when we stray off, we have the opportunity to repent of those sins, confess those sins, and then pray that God might forgive us. If you need to respond to the gospel invitation, and be reminded of the central role in God's scheme of redemption, of the Church of Christ, we urge you to do so as we stand and sing. This door, why will you linger,
1: wandering from the fold of God? Hear you not the invitation? is dying. Oh my God. that sermon very much and it's always beneficial to have these things reinforced in our minds god makes it plain that's for sure if we're a bit honest number 432 or for a faith that will not shrink 432 let's remember our five o'clock training class this afternoon followed by our 530 memorization class Please make uh, strong efforts to be here for these that are very beneficial to us as Christians of any age and encouragement to those who teach them as well. Number <clears throat> 432. Oh, for a pain that will not shrink, though pressed by every foe, mumble on the brink of any earthly woe that will not murmur or complain beneath the chastening rod but in the hour of greed or pain will lean upon his God shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without that when in danger knows no fear in darkness knows no doubt lord give us such a faith as this and then what may come The hallowed bliss of an eternal Lord.